And mostly it isn't that you a series here where we're talking about the Ephesian era at the moment and what if we were there. And I went to the book of Ephesians primarily because it is directed especially to that church and examining it somewhat with the comments made in Revelation 2 in mind of the good things that God said about Ephesus in Revelation 2 and the one thing that he did get on them about, and that was that they had lost their first love. They weren't as enthusiastic, as zealous, as loving and kind, perhaps, toward God and man as they originally were. And he laid quite a bit of background here uh, by showing that they truly were called of God, that they were important to God, and I uh, extrapolated that toward us, that we would not be here as part of the church if that were not the case. And then he went on to show his own qualification, that God had sent him to them, that they might be, or it might be imparted to them, the word of God and the importance of living God's way of life. So he went through basically three chapters of introduction before he gets down to the heart of the matter, showing the are called of God, who he was, that he could come and speak to them, and then how important Christ and the Father were to them. So then he gets down to chapter 4, and is beginning to get really into the heart of the matter of some of the things they needed to deal with. So let's go into chapter 4 of Ephesians, and it does really, in this chapter, begin to echo the problem that Christ mentioned about Ephesus in Revelation 2. So he, in summarizing the things that he said in chapters 1, 2, and 3, Paul says in chapter 4, I therefore, because of the things I've said before, he says here, I therefore, the prisoner of the eternal, he had made himself a willing slave to Christ, and in other places in Scripture he uses the same analogy, that he was a slave of Christ, a willing slave. Beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called. God called us to a vocation, a career, a lifetime servitude, if you will, so that we belong to him, heart, mind, body, and soul totally in his care, in his hands. When we repent, we're supposed to be, and we don't always fully accomplish it, of course, and I say always, we never do. We're supposed to die, and we go into the water symbolically to die, because if you stay underwater, you will drown. So it is symbolic of us giving up this life and living a life anew. And we bring up, we're brought up out of the water in a symbol of the resurrection. That that which died and should have been left in the water is then to come up and lead a new life. So it is very symbolic of resurrection when we are brought out of the water after baptism. No longer do we belong to ourselves but we long, belong to our Father in heaven and to Christ his Son. Now, we always have in that we're a part of the creation from Adam and Eve on down. So, we belong to him, 
by birth. But it is our lack of recognition of that that is the problem. God knows we're His children, but it takes a long time for us to recognize that we're His children, and most people will never submit to that idea. They would rather reject God or reject God's words, and in, a sen- in essence, they are rejecting God. And you have the whole body of churchgoers and so-called Christians today who essentially reject all but a very few verses in the Bible. They lay claim to being followers of God in Christ and call themselves Christians, but they deny almost everything that he says. So they are Christians really only in their own mind. It's like a captain said to somebody who wanted to be a captain of a ship. To your mother, you may be a captain. To your first mate, you may be a captain. But to a captain, you're not a captain. The captain in his own mind. Now, we may fancy ourselves Christians, but if we don't follow the words of God, then we are not, to God, a Christian, just in our own mind. A legend in your own mind does not make you a legend in God's mind or in the mind of others. But Paul had shown by his lifestyle that his body was not his own. He rejected his past. He rejected where he was from. He rejected who he was related to. He rejected his education. He rejected everything about his past life and called it done. So the only thing about me that is valuable is that I have devoted myself to God. Paul said it doesn't matter where I came from. It doesn't matter who my parents were, Benjamites. Doesn't matter that I studied at the feet of Gamaliel. All of that I count as manure dropped from the behind of a cow. That's all it meant to him. Because he saw something bigger and far more important. Now, I was born in Texas. I'm not from Texas. I lived in Alaska and liked it a whole lot better, in Montana and Wyoming and other places as well but I like better than Texas. Now, I may have been born in Texas, but what's the difference? What if I've been born in Borneo? That rhymes, doesn't it? Born in Borneo. Or wherever. Because what I came from means nothing anymore. The only thing that matters is this Word of God. Paul had bragged most of his life about where he was from and who he was and where he had been educated and how important he was. And then he said, that's just all manure. The only thing that matters is the here and now and what God has given me to do. We are not ambassadors for Louisiana or Texas or Washington or Canada 
we're ambassadors for Christ. Our citizenship is in heaven, is where our citizenship is. So no longer are we a product of China, or America, or Africa, or South America. We are a product of the kingdom of God. That is where our sole allegiance is. Now that probably would not sound good to someone who's a patriotic American or a patriotic Russian or wherever you might have originated. What I, I mean, yeah, we do have citizenship papers and we try to be good citizens of whatever country we might live in around the world. But our primary allegiance is to God in heaven. He is the one we look to first. We might say, well, I'm married to so-and-so. My allegiance is to my wife or to my husband. That's true to a degree. But your first allegiance is to God in heaven. Your first allegiance is to your husband-to-be, Christ Emmanuel. That's your first allegiance. And Paul himself even said, you might have a mate that departs. Let them depart. Let them depart. You remain faithful, regardless. Your allegiance to God is far more important than your allegiance to a man or woman on this earth. And those aren't my words. Those are the words of Paul that Christ canonized and put in the Bible. They're the word of God. So when Paul says, I'm a prisoner of the eternal, he knew whereof he spoke. And he wants us to be the same way. That's why he says, walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called. You know, some people who have careers, vocations, will work long, hard hours to make that career a success, whatever they're trained in. They'll work weekends, They'll work late into the night. Back when I was running a little construction business, I would work sometimes 14, 16, 18, even 20 hours a day at night. So I wanted to succeed at what I was doing. Now, that may have been stupidity in some ways, but you can't say it wasn't devotion. You can't say it wasn't zeal and interest in what I was doing. It was important to me. Now, it was out of balance. I'll say that. But if carnal people in this world are willing to devote the time and energy they do to their careers, we are called into a vocation and a career as sons of God and as slaves and prisoners of deity. And we are to walk worthy of that vocation. Now, do you begin to see here how the lack of first love or zeal had diminished in these people? And that's, that's where he's headed with this. The energy, 
that we would put into any vocation has to be put into obeying God. The bringing of every thought into captivity. You know, that requires 12, 14, 16, 18, 20 hours a day. I don't know how many hours you sleep, but when you're sleeping is the only time that you are not under compulsion to bring every one of your thoughts into captivity. Now, that's a slave indeed, because you're not to think your own thoughts. You're to think godly thoughts. We like to think our own thoughts, don't we? They're, they're fun, they're comfortable, they're exciting, they're uh, wasteful, <laughs> they can be a lot of things. But bringing them into captivity is not easy. And yet he says, bring every thought into captivity. And we're to walk worthy of the vocation wherewith we are taught. That requires fervency and zeal, excitement and interest. You know, don't we go through that? I know we all have experienced this. We have to continually check our thought patterns to be sure that they're headed in the right direction. Because our minds can stray in one of a thousand different directions that are ungodly. And it is so natural and so easy, and we've worn such ruts in our minds sometimes that it's hard to jump out of them. Just as you can be driving a car in ruts that are six or eight inches deep. And sometimes it's very difficult to jerk that car out of the ruts, especially if there's still slimy mud all over them and they won't get traction to pull them out of the rut. And our minds are very much like that. We've worn deep ruts and thought patterns in them, and there's lots of slime and mud <laughs> along with it. And it's not easy to change. That's why it takes a great deal of, of, uh, of work. It's hard. But we can float along. And we can allow our minds to idle in a thousand different directions. But we need to be aware every moment that we are alive, that we are alert, that we are awake. Of the way our minds need to be going. I mean, we may be doing something completely physical. But are we doing that thing the way God would do it? Are we approaching it in the way that God would approach it? You know, there are good ways to do physical work, and there are sloppy, lazy ways to do work. If you're a mechanic on cars, you can be very careless. Leave wires unattached, leave bolts loose, leave a few parts out. You know, one of those mechanics, his, his inventory just keeps growing because every time he fixes something, he has extra parts. And, and they just pile up in the corner? No? There's a godly way of fixing a car. Now, there were no cars when this was written. Except maybe some of the conveyances that spirits use. But the principle is there, you see. Even though the machine may not have been there, the principle is there. That there is a godly way to go about repairing something, and there is an ungodly way. Now, sometimes the cheap, quick fix is needed. But then sometimes we need to go back and do it right. 
And we have different skill levels. Even building a house, you have craftsmen and you have cobblers. And sometimes to cobble is the best that our skill level will allow, but we still need to cobble as best we can. And I admire people who can do things and who have true abilities that maybe I don't have. But still, I need to do it as much the way, the right way as I can. Okay, so let's walk worthy of the vocation when we're called. And here then it shows the attitude to do it in. Work hard at it, do it right, and do it with all lowliness and meekness, with patience, long-suffering, forbearing one another in love. So we are to esteem others more important than we are, to esteem their abilities and so on above our own, as he says, I think, in, in uh, Thessalonians, I believe it mentions that. Not to be high and mighty, not to be proud, to have a lowly mind, a meek mind, not to rise up in vanity and pride, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love. Every one of us here has faults. Every one of us here has weaknesses. Everyone has lack of skill in one department or another, or another. Some have strengths in areas where others are weak. And those others might be strong in areas where the others are weak. So we're all different. We have different gifts, different abilities. And we have to be very, very careful that we don't look down upon one another in an area where we might not have a weakness. Because every one of us has them. It's just that we look at a certain person and say, well, why are they like that? Well, I don't know why they're like that, but they are. Have mercy, have compassion, have love, have feeling for them. Try to help them. Try to set an example for them. Maybe you're strong in an area they're weak. Well, flip the coin over. Maybe they're strong in an area you're weak. So what's the best thing to do for each of us to look down upon one another because of the weaknesses that the others might have? Or should we be patient and long-suffering and forbearing of one another? I use the example of chickens very often. If they see a weakness in each other, they will start pecking at one another and they will absolutely peck each other to death. And we can be the same way if we're not careful, pecking at each other because we happen to see lice on one another or a feather out of shape or a weakness of some kind or another. We cannot do that. So he says, be worthy of the vocation you're called, be kind and gentle and loving, compassionate, considerate of one another. endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, we've been given the Spirit of God, which is a spirit 
that is full of love, mercy, compassion, long-suffering, patience, joy. Those are the fruit of the Spirit, plus a few more. That's the Spirit we've been given, not to walk in the carnal, lustful, vain, egocentric pride of life, but to walk in meekness and humility with one another. And God wants us to be unified in a bond of peace. I would hope that anyone who visited here would go away with the impression that there is a group of people who live in peace. They're unified. They're close. Wouldn't it be a sad testimony if they came to visit and said, you know, all I could hear was people down-talking one another in that group. Well, they got some somebody here with new ears they could bend about so-and-so and so-and-so and such-and-such. Wouldn't that be sad if they walked away from here saying, yeah, man, those people don't get along at all. You should hear the things I heard. They just unloaded on me. I would not be surprised in any group that that's the way people did because I've seen it happen over the years. But let's not let it happen here. If anybody comes and visits here, they need to go away with the impression that we love one another, that we're close, unified. We live in peace and harmony. And once in a while, somebody will say, well, we're just not very unified, or we don't seem to have enough love, or people aren't friendly enough, or whatever. All right? Fix it. Don't complain about it to someone else. Fix it. Be friendly. Slobber all over them. What's it going to take? You can become a party of one to build peace and unity and friendship and close ties. Sometimes your advances are thwarted, however, are they not? So you try to be friendly with somebody and bleh, you don't get anywhere. Well, don't give up. Just keep on keeping on after them. Try to be as friendly as you can. Just grin from ear to ear. Be friendly, be outgoing, be warm, be compassionate, be forgiving and forbearing. I read something the other day, I, I don't remember where it was, but it says everybody loves somebody who loves them. You know, if somebody just makes it clear that they really like you, it's hard not to like them, isn't it? It's easy to dislike somebody every time they see you, their nose turns up, you, I smell something. It's hard to like them. But if you find somebody that just seems to really like you, whether you deserve it or not, you know, it's hard not to like them in return. And we gravitate to those people because we feel warm and good and comfortable with them. So if our job is a party of one, is it not to make everybody warm and comfortable with us? Now there's a challenge. But that's what we're to be endeavoring 
working at becoming. The unity of spirit, of the spirit, in the bond of peace. So it's not just human beings trying to make peace, but it's calling on the spirit of God, who has the power. If we walk in the spirit, then we can become peacemakers. There is one body and one spirit. We could go to 1 Corinthians 12 here very easily and spend the rest of the day talking about unity and how one part of the body, if one part of the body suffers, the rest of the body suffers, and so on. The scripture we're very familiar with, and it certainly applies here. But Paul is talking about the same subject here in Ephesians that he was talking about in 1 Corinthians 12. So I'm not going there to keep moving forward, but he's saying some of the same things here. There is one body. We are one body here. Now you, yourself, are one compact body. And you have all the different parts that God designed into a body. And you want your body to work in harmony, in peace, and not have your hand as an enemy of your head, or your foot as an enemy of your rear end, or whatever. You want it to all work in harmony and coexist without pain. And you know that when you get a backache or a footache or a pinched finger, that your whole body hurts and feels sorry for the finger that has been pinched in the door. Is that enough said? We are all one body here. We're all part of the same body of Christ. And he suffered throughout his entire body and then died for us. So not one part of his body did not suffer. Therefore, he can be a type of the rest of us. Now, well, he'll say it here. I'll, I'll get to that in a little bit, maybe. Now, he went down into the grave, completely dead. And when he came out, he ascended above and he was completely healed. So that which had hurt all over, now did not hurt anywhere. So the church, which has been scattered and which has hurt all over, is to become transformed and not hurt anywhere. That is the goal and the purpose we should have in mind in living here with one another. And what a golden opportunity it is to have a collection of not eclectic but common people who have all the different weaknesses of mankind collected right here. And to have the opportunity to overcome and change that and to become something that would be admirable to anyone, anywhere. Now, they may resent us. They may hate us when we achieve that. That's okay. Because Christ said, He and His Father are one, and there's no variance or turning between them. They are totally unified, and the world hates them. The whole world hates the Father and Son, even those who call themselves Christians. 
They hate what they stand for. They hate their laws. They hate their instructions. They want to do what they want to do. So, if they see us unified in living together in love and appreciation and respect for one another, they will appreciate that that exists, but they'll hate what it took to get there. Just like people love obedient, respectful, loving, well-behaved children, but they hate the process that is required to accomplish it. They want the result, but they don't want the procedures. So they wind up with a society of children that we have today in this world that are belligerent, stubborn, rebellious, disrespectful, wild, undisciplined, untamed, and they don't like that. But if you choose to chasten your child, they'll take them away from you. So they love the effect, but they hate what it takes to accomplish it. But it does take the Spirit of God to have true godly love, unification, and peace. And we can tap into that. So what a golden opportunity we have here to transform ourselves and to transform this group of individuals who came here into a loving, close, kind, gentle, peaceful unit. Can we each take that responsibility? Can we each say, that means me? Can we each do all that is possible to create that kind of climate? Now, I'm not saying that we're full of war and lack of peace here, because we're not. I think to some degree, we have already achieved that, and it has not always come easy over the last six, seven years. There have been growing pains, but I think we've made progress, and I feel a unity and closeness here among us that has improved over the years. But that's not to say that we still don't have our difficulties and our problems that we need to work at so that it is more peaceful and more unified and closer. I don't think until we are God that we can say it is a job that is finished, until we achieve what the Father and the Son have. But that should be our goal and our purpose. And Christ even said that there in John 15, 16, 17, in several different ways. That he wished that we would become one as he and the Father are. And he said, if you do, the world will hate you. That's just, it goes with the territory. We better love each other and let the world hate us. That's okay. Because it's not us they hate, even as God told Samuel. They have not rejected you, Samuel, they rejected me. Samuel felt it. But it really wasn't directed at him. It was really directed at God. So he says there's one body and one spirit. That spirit should impart the attitude of God. 
We cannot anymore have our own attitudes. We must come to have the attitude of God. But we fight our attitudes, don't we? Somebody told me just before service that sometimes he or she has bad attitudes. And I acted really surprised. I said, I'm sure glad I don't. (laughs) But I do. And I have to fight them and work through them. Most of my bad attitudes aren't about you. Most of them are about my own self, which is what this person was indicating when that was mentioned. I know it's me. Well, it's usually me, too. Although once in a while I'll grumble under my breath, people. (laughs) People are problematic. People have problems. People create problems. We all do. But there's where we need the Spirit of God to help us deal with other people's attitudes. Because we have our own and they have theirs. And we all need to be working at having God's. You know, Anything that comes up in life, anything that comes up all day long, any hour of the day, any minute, you have an attitude, one way or another, don't you? You always have an attitude. I'm not saying a bad one. You always have a response. You always have a way of looking at whatever happens to be on the screen at the moment of life. Now, those attitudes can be godly, they can be carnal, they can be selfish, they can be loving and giving, they can be all kinds. But the point is, no matter what is said, whoever says it, you're going to have an attitude about it. Yes or no, good or bad, for better or for worse, whatever. So what it boils down to is you have to be sure that your attitude toward life, toward a person, toward what is said, toward what is seen, is a godly outlook and attitude. That's what attitude adjustment is about. It's looking at things the way God looks at them. And the human mind is carnal and enmity against God, and wants to walk after the flesh and wants to have human responses. Disgust look down upon, lift self up above, laziness, not caring, whatever. You know, we can have all kinds of different attitudes. So what life is all about, really, is attitude adjustment. And we have to constantly be filtering and analyzing our attitudes. Is this the response, the attitude, the approach that I should have toward whatever's on the plate at the moment. So that we are continually sorting, selecting, deciding, changing our approach. I think we experience that, but maybe we have to put it in words and define it a little bit so that we are aware of what we need to be doing. Because it's so easy to go through life thinking just as a human being would. 
without filtering every word, every thought, every attitude that we have. And that's what we're called to do, is filter those things, fix them, change them. And it is a every moment you're awake challenge and battle to be sure your attitude is right. Well, there's one body and one spirit, one mind, the mind of God, that we're struggling to have. It doesn't come easy, because we are prone to walk in the flesh. Even as you are called in one hope of your calling, we're all called for the same hope, the glory of God, to be in the kingdom of God, to live forever in peace, happiness, security, and without animosity and fear and frustration, and all of the things that we're dealing with here in boot camp, this life, all that will change. All that will be different. So we all have the same calling, the same purpose here. We all want to be in the kingdom of God, or we would not be here going through what we are going through. It would be far easier to approach life in a different way. If you feel like lying, lie. You feel like stealing, steal. Feel like committing adultery, go for it. You feel like dishonoring God in any way, go for it. It'd be easier, wouldn't it? If there is no resurrection, then let's all eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Might as well just live however you feel like, do whatever you want to do. Enjoy whatever you want to enjoy, because you're going to die and it's all over anyway. So might as well live for the moment and have fun. That is an approach and attitude to life that this entire nation and the entire world, for that matter, has adopted. And hey, if I did not have hope in the resurrection and change, that is the way I would live. I would not fight myself. I would do whatever I wanted to do. And all too often I do anyway. That's the problem. But we are convinced, aren't we, that it is worth it to control our thoughts, our energies, our minds, our drives, our desires, our feelings, and bring every thought into the captivity of Christ so that he might show mercy and grace and give us eternal life and well-being and happiness and a wonderful world tomorrow. That's the reason we fight. That's the reason we try to and work at keeping our attitudes where they ought to be. So we have one hope of our calling, and one God, one faith, one baptism. We're in this together, is what he's saying. One God and Father of all, who is above all, and through all, and in you all. And if we can internalize what he said right there, and live if he is in us, as if he is in us all and we are one. 
Now we say that a husband and wife should become one flesh. Yet in an overall sense, on a spiritual level, we should all be one spirit, one mind, one flesh in that sense. Unified, coexisting in peace. Maybe not with the sexual intent of one uh, one flesh, but certainly in a mental and an emotional way, we should all become one, unified, indivisible, close, loving, kind, gentle, supportive of one another. If someone says something evil or down about any one of us, we should be a committee of one to change that. Isn't it easy to say something negative about one another? That just rolls out of you so easily. I say you, I mean we. It rolls out of us so easily. But if someone says something negative about someone, can't you find something good to say about them? Well, maybe so, but there's this, there's that. They're not all bad. Like we say about one another once in a while, you're not all bad, I don't care what you say. We use it as a joke, and it is meant that way. But we're here to encourage and strengthen and build up, not tear each other down. So can we decide that our individual policy will be to uplift, to speak well of someone? Sure, we all have our faults, we all have our weaknesses. Does anybody deny that? We don't like them broadcast, do we? But we all have them. And in our heart of hearts, we know most of what ours are. And we can see perceived weaknesses in each other, and some of them are true. They're not just perceptions. We have them. And sometimes they're obvious to others. But does that mean we need to talk about them all the time? Does it mean we have to point them out constantly? Does it mean we have to be negative? No, it doesn't. It means we need to take that which is natural and normal to complain and gripe about each other and find something good to say. And if you can't find anything good to say, then don't comment. That's a phrase I remember from earliest life. My grandmother and my mother drilled that in me to almost no avail. If you can't say anything good about somebody, don't say anything. Most of us probably heard that expression growing up and sort of flipped it aside. Now, if somebody brings somebody up and they say something negative, and we can't think of anything positive about that person to say, Maybe we could just turn it around. Maybe we could just say, well, can't you find anything good about them to say? 
And if they can, then maybe you can repeat that. There's bound to be something. There is not anyone here. I, I think I can say, state this without any hesitation. There is not anybody here that is all bad. There is not anybody here that's all good either. You know. Give it to them with one hand, take it away with the other. No, we're all a mix of weaknesses and strengths. But what we need to do is we need to emphasize our strengths. Notice verse 7. But unto every one of us is given pardon, grace, good favor, according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Now, God looks down, and you know what? He sees more evil in every one of us in this audience, whether it be here in this room or by telephone or by tape later. He sees more faults in every one of us than we could possibly begin to see in each other. And He even sees more faults in every one of us than we can see in ourselves. You know, I have far more faults than I even know about. And I know about a lot of them. But I have more than even I can comprehend. And God knows what they are. And He is aware of every one of them. But in every one of us, whom God can see clearly, Every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. He is loving, he is forgiving, he is long-suffering, he is patient. He embodies the Spirit of God. No limits, it has no bounds. Even those few who go into the lake of fire, once the plan is complete, are going to die because of the mercy of God. Because they are so intransigent, so stubborn, so rebellious, so hateful, so vilifying, that they will not accept the way of God. And therefore, they are so miserable that it would be unmerciful to allow them to live. So God will in mercy turn them up so they do not have to live in that kind of an environment, the environment of their own mind. Now, Satan and the demons may have to live forever with an unrepentant, rebellious, recalcitrant attitude. They were given more in some respects. And they were given eternal life. Or immortality, maybe would be a better word. And they rebelled. And they may have to live with that rebellion. And that is one of the key reasons 
that God has made us human instead of eternal. So that if we will not repent, if we reject Him entirely and totally, He can remove us from consciousness so that we do not have to live in bitterness, animosity and anger and hate and rebellion throughout eternity. He mercifully made Adam and Eve human and all of us ever since. Now, if we will make the change and come to think like he thinks, he'll give us the gift of eternal life, and he will give us life eternal under beautiful conditions, with no pain, no tears, no remorse, no fear, no guilt, no frustration. So his mercy endures forever in both directions, doesn't it? He will kill those who make themselves miserable and would always be that way. And he will give eternal life to all of those who are willing to go his way. So understand, even though he understands us and knows us inside out better than any human being can know another. You know, you can live with somebody for 50 or 60 years and still not really, truly, fully know them. You know a lot about them. You know a lot about their reactions. But there can be pieces and corners of their heart and mind that you never come to know. But God can see through all that and knows each of us completely and perfectly and ponders our hearts, minds, and attitudes continuously. And yet, as weak, as pathetic, as small, as ineffective and inefficient as we are, and incompetent as we may be, spiritually speaking, he's given every one of us a measure of the gift of Christ, his mercy, his good favor. What an incredible thing. Whereof he said, when he ascended up on high, he led my margin says, a multitude of captives and gave gifts to men. When he arose from this earth and ascended into the heavens, only 50 days later he sent his Spirit, Spirit of God, to dwell in mankind. And those men, those people, submitted themselves and became captives or slaves to God through the power of the Spirit and repentance of the walking the way of flesh. Willing captives and gave gifts to men, the gifts of his Spirit. We need to pray continually that God give us more of his Spirit, more of the gifts of his Spirit, so that they exude from us. Now, now that he ascended, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? Yes, he ascended into heaven glorious, triumphant, perfect. But carrying our sins, he descended into the bowels of the earth, into the grave, into death. Not because of his sin, but because of ours. He that descended is the same also, but ascended up far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. He is going to make us into glorious, eternal beings, with light and heat and fire 
and constantly good attitudes to help create a beautiful, peaceful world down here in the millennium and the great white throne judgment and from there ever after. So he was willing to go into the bowels of the earth and die so that he might ascend and live and bring us to live in him and with him forevermore. That's his goal and purpose. And then Paul indicates one of the ways that he is setting about accomplishing that. It says, And he gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. Now, just reading verse 11 of Ephesians 4 gets some people so angry they could spit nails because they resent offices, they resent authority, they resent another human being who sweats and stinks like they do, being in a position of authority or teaching or above them, if we want to use the word above in any way. Some have even gotten very upset that a minister would stand up on a platform above the people. And yet you find in Nehemiah that they built a platform way above the people so that a vast crowd could see and hear better. But people resent that. Actually, I'm standing on a rubber mat up here that's probably three-eighths of an inch thick or more, so I'm elevating myself. And I have heels on my boots, and that kicks me up there almost to the level of a human being. Not even average. I think 5'10 for men used to be average. It may be going up a little bit now with degeneracy and higher levels of that people are attaining, but I never was even average height. Too bad. I'm going to try to act like a people anyway. Well, no, I'm going to try to act like a God. That's tougher. But you know, God did set offices in the church. He had a purpose in it. That's what he's trying to get across to these people. Some people are going to have a bad attitude about the ministry who are in the church now, and I don't think there's any way you can fix it. They tend to have such bad attitudes, and with, in many cases, good reason, over the last 30, 40 years, in the church of God. All I can do is apologize for us in the ministry and say, we loused it up. We need to fix it. We need to do it differently. But he gave those things. He gave those offices. And Paul is speaking of them here in an uplifting, strengthening, conditioning way to get people to understand that, yeah, they may be human beings, but for whatever reason, God put them there for a purpose. And he goes on to explain what the purpose is. For the perfecting of the saints. Now, somebody who's in a position as a pastor, as I am standing here today, I did not select you to be in this congregation, did I? I didn't. I didn't even know you. You decided yourself to come here. I don't know, we all make mistakes, I'm sorry. <laughs> 
this is what you got. I'm trying to do it the best I can, and I fall very short of that so much, so often, in so many ways. And I know that. I'm trying to fix it, brethren. I'm trying to do things differently than they used to be done. And differently than I used to do. It's not always easy. It's hard. It's hard to do it right. It's hard to live a human life correctly, and it's certainly hard to be a minister correctly. On top of it. Not easy. I'm supposed to lead you in spiritual ways. And me being a human being, that's very difficult to do. And it puts a lot of pressure on. But for the perfecting of the saints. Now, all of us here are imperfect, including me. But it's my job to move us all in the direction of perfection. Now, sometimes... they say of the ministry, they done quit preaching and started meddling. That is, they began to talk about things that affect us personally. And if something is mentioned that might be a shoe that fits our feet, it is so natural and so human to take umbrage at that to be upset by it, to be pinched by it, to be frustrated by it, to think he's preaching directly at me. And very, not very frequently, but fairly often, somebody will think, well, you were just talking to me. Why did you single me out? In many cases, I'm absolutely floored by that because they hadn't crossed my mind at all. They weren't as important as they thought they were. Smile. I may have thought of an example that came from something I saw in somebody 40 years ago, 30 years ago. And that came to my mind and I said it because it's something that has probably been a problem with hundreds of people that I've spoken to over the years, thousands of people. You do not have a unique set of problems. Well, you do in one sense because each of us is unique. But we do share commonalities. We do share many of the same problems. Because in human nature, heads toward the same difficulties, generally speaking. I couldn't name five problems. Just pick that number out of the air. Let's be generous. I could not name ten problems. Any set of problems that just came to mind, I could not name ten of them. But all of us here do not share at least one of, and probably seven of. Can't be done. But most of the time, I do not single out individuals to preach at. Once in a while, an example will come to my mind and I'll start talking about it, and then maybe it'll pop into my mind, well, there's some here that have that problem. And I might think of one or two, or three or five, or forty. Not always. 
sometimes. But it is my job to perfect the saints. And if there are imperfections, then I'm not meddling, am I? I'm talking about things we all need to change, to grow in, to overcome, and to be different in, so that we might become more mature and more perfect spiritually. And that will hurt. That will pinch. That will feel personal at times. But if it isn't personal, what good does it do? If it isn't something that any one of us here might have a problem with, then why mention it at all? What's the point? You know, I could probably go to some books of poetry. I might go to some high-class literature if it exists on the earth. I might be able to find some philosophically high and mighty things that we could talk about here in church, and we could begin to speak in very high-sounding language and great drama of the wonders of the human mind and how great we all are. And I'd have puke all over the floor. Because we're human. And because we do have faults and imperfections. Sure, you could skirt about the issue. Sure, you could talk high and mighty things. And perhaps we need to do that at times. But at the same time, we need to cry aloud and spare not and tell God's people what their sins are so that they might work on them and overcome them. It isn't the purpose to condemn us all. It's the purpose to educate us in what all the nuances and ins and outs of our attitudes are so that we might work at improving them, perfecting them, changing them, and becoming more what we ought to be. So if we read about the Ephesian church, what if we were the Ephesian church here in the end time? Well, then we should consider what God says to the Ephesians. And the things we're talking about today are that. I was going to finish at least one chapter today. Anyway, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the service to the people, the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, to edify it, to make them, to inspire, to encourage, to strengthen, to show compassion for and mercy to. To edify means to uplift and to help. So to perfect, you need to point out the imperfections so that those might be overcome. To edify, you need to do what Paul did here at the first part of this book. To help them see that they truly belong to God and are important to God and are important to one another. That's what edification is all about, to help lift up. So you have to analyze and point out errors that need to be fixed, at the same time give encouragement and strengthening so that we might feel like we can walk out and still survive and move forward. 
And it is a challenge to do both of those. But what you notice in Scripture, when you go through this book, through Corinthians, through Psalms, through uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, through any part of the Bible, it'll get really nasty, won't it? And how God forbids sin and hates sin and is going to punish for sin and I'll bring judgment on you for sin. So it can get really gloomy <laughs> and then he'll change and he'll say, but I love you and I want you to do better and, I, and I'm going to show mercy on you and I'll give you the gift of eternal life if you'll just follow me and I'll pour out blessings from beneath and blessings from above. So he constantly in the Bible is push and pull. He's constantly correcting and encouraging. About the time you read some of those scriptures, you, you know, you just begin to feel like the lowest thing on earth, then it'll change and it'll get encouraging. About the time you begin to feel like I can flip the world, it'll go the other way again. So it's alter scriptures that way. Old Testament, New Testament. For the edifying of the body of Christ, the church. Till we all, here's the purpose, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. See, now that is the purpose. That's why we have Sabbath services. That's why we have a ministry instead of just a round table discussion or uh, a consensus, or whatever. Even when there was the gift of tongues there in 1 Corinthians 12, where people could speak in different languages and in Acts 2, Paul said that that is a gift from God to impart understanding. It's not to speak gibberish and roll on the floor. That is not the gift of tongues. That is the gift of demons but languages so that others might understand in their own tongue. We don't need that. Now we all speak English, more or less. We don't need tongues right now. When we need them, we'll be given them. And they needed them then because they were going into areas of the world that they did not speak the native tongue of. So God gave that gift so the people might understand. They were speaking Chinese, but you understood it as Hebrew or or Spanish, or whatever. The gift. So we're all to come into the unity of the faith, the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to measure up to the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's what the ministry is given for, to help do. And that's why we have a formal service of teaching and preaching, and all preached, People say, well, you're not, you're not, we don't need preachers. We don't need preaching. And he even called preaching foolish. And yet he kept doing it, didn't he? He had been called to do that. He had been instructed to do that. So preaching, sermons, are to be given in the church of God so that we might all come to be more like God is. That's the purpose. And yes, it does seem foolish in one sense, and I think that's what Paul meant. The one man who breathes and sweats and stinks and has problems, and yet he is commissioned 
to speak to and teach others because of the gift that God has put there to allow that, and it's needful. It's easy to despise and look down on because very often we can see flaws in whoever the speaker might be as a human being. But we have to rise above that, understanding the purpose for which God put them there. You know, not any one of us is ever qualified, truly, to speak to other human beings, because every one of us is flawed. And even said of Aaron the high priest that he had to offer sacrifice for himself and bathe himself and cleanse himself before he could go in as a representative of the people into the Holy of Holies before God and present himself and them to God. <laughs> so it is not any different now than it has ever been. I have to pray for forgiveness, for mercy, for compassion. And I have to pray for inspiration and guidance that God will put His words in my mouth every day that I speak to you. Because I want it to be God's words, not Daryl's words. God called me to this job. I have no doubt of that as I look back in my life. Did I deserve it? Am I fully qualified for it? Not a chance. It's a job I have to do in spite of myself. And I pray continually that God will use me to inspire, to encourage, to strengthen, to correct, to lead you in spite of myself. And you have to look at it the same way. You have to look at the instruction and the guidance that's coming through the eyes of the Word of God, not through the one who is expounding it and saying it. And I realize that that is a very difficult choice. Because I don't think I've ever gone to a service in the church of God in my life that I was not to one degree or another analyzing the speaker. And that's not wrong. But if you analyze and you see faults in the speaker, understand that that is going to be the case. And rise above it. Look above it. Look at what is being said from the Word of God so that you're looking at that and what is being said is opposed to the one who is saying. Because if you want to find fault, you will not fail. It can be done. And is common. So it's a burden to speak. It's a pressure to speak. Now, we don't have thousands of people listening at this point, but even speaking to one or three or ten or forty or a hundred creates a pressure in itself. Speaking with one of you individually, one-on-one, -on -one, creates pressure on me. Now, I'm not asking for sympathy here. I'm explaining something. It comes with a territory. I have to constantly analyze my attitude, my approach, what I'm saying, how I'm saying it, because I want you to benefit if you talk to me, whether it be praise 
or whether it be correction and guidance. I want it to be done in a way that will help and enhance your life and make you more like your father and your husband to be. That's a challenge, and it puts a pressure on me every day in every conversation. But it's not easy. So I know I've been on the other side being preached at, and I have seen faults and problems in the people doing the preaching. So I have to look for the good in the words, not the evil in the person. And you have to do the same. That's what forbearing one another, loving one another, and being unified together is all about. It's not just about each of us in the congregation toward each other, but it's in those who have been put in a position of leadership in dealing with you and you with them. That also is not easy. It's not. For you or for me. So let's all come to the unity of the faith and the perfection and the attitude and the maturity of Christ. Because if we fall short of that, we will find fault with one another and we will discount one another and discount what each of us is trying to accomplish. And that hurts us all. We're here to be one flesh, one mind, one body, one spirit. So we all come to the unity and the measure of the fullness of the stature of Christ.